This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. Welcome to episode number 117 of Baseball and BBQ. And I'm here with my New Year's. He's no longer the New Year's baby, but he's still Jeff Cohen. Jeff, we're, we're deep into 2022. Come on. Deep, deep into it. So am I. Who am I? Who are you? You are the king of all media. <laughs> I'm Howard Stern. <laughs> well, little king. Leonard Aberman. And I'm. Um, Damn glad to be here. <laughs> Jeff, we don't have a lot of time to banter because we have two guests that are going to blow your socks off. Yes. We have none other than Bobby V. Bobby V. And Emily D. The V stands for? Bobby Valentine. And the D stands for? Emily Detweiler. I mean, just amazing guests. Bobby Valentine has a new book called Valentine's Way. Great reading. It was a great book, a fun book to read. Yeah, there, a, lot, a lot of doodads in there that uh, you never knew about. Yeah, a lot. I, I, as I said to Bobby in the interview, if you ever wanted to see what it was like to be a, a manager, or, you know, to, to get behind the scenes uh, of what it's like to be a manager, I think his book is, you know, among other things, that is one of the things that it really exposes. Yeah, I, I didn't know managers do, you know, more than what meets the eye. It really goes behind more. the scenes. Yeah, a lot more. And Jeff, I don't know how I, I sound. I'm trying something a little different with the microphone. Hopefully, I sound a little better because I, I know that something's been going on with my microphone in a couple of the episodes. So I apologize for that. But hopefully, it sounds a little better. If not, we're going to have a little mic adjustment. So we'll address that, I guess, after this comes out. And we Thank, Thanks for telling the world. You know, I'm I'm transparent. I want yeah. we pull back the curtain all the time. Right. And and speaking of episode 114, Howard Johnson and Doug Scheiding, still incredible listening. I hope our, our listeners are are getting that. Episode 115. Joe Pasnansky and Chris Schaefer. Right. And then 116, our New Year's episode. And I mentioned those three episodes because they all came out around the holidays, right? right? Yep. You know, a lot of people are not listening to podcasts during the holidays. Maybe they're, you know, they're not driving to work or maybe whatever. Well, they're busy with family. Not really much of an excuse to not listen, but those three episodes, guys, if you haven't heard them, go back and listen to them. But Jeff, you want you got anything you want to say before we get into the Bobby V about Bobby V? 
No, Bobby V's great. It's a, you know he's a tremendous speaker. What a, what an interview! I really enjoyed talking to him, and I think we should get right to him. Bobby V, back for a second time on baseball and BBQ. This baseball savant needs no introduction. Suffice it to say, he has a new book based on his life and travels in the world of baseball. It's called Valentine's Way. And with us, the one and only Bobby V. Welcome back, Bobby. Good to be back with you guys. Thank you. I think I was wearing the same shirt last time I was on. <laughs> First of all, I loved, loved, loved the book. What an interesting <laughs> life you led. We had you on about a year ago and we covered some of the things, so we're not going to repeat that. But I wanted to start when you were uh, being recruited for college, because I thought that was fantastic stories in the book. You offered many scholarships to some, some pretty big-name universities in the Ivy League, Penn, Dartmouth, Yale, also Notre Dame, Miami, Nebraska, USC. Michael Burke was the president of the Yankees, and he was a Penn alumni. He wanted you to go to Penn. Could you tell us a story about that and how you, how you tried to bribe you by meeting Mickey Mantle? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Michael, he's the president of the Yankees, but he was, he was a University of Penn guy. You know, I mean, he dressed very dapper. His hair was as white as mine, but he had a, a lot more of it, you know, over his collar and you know, the Yankees were just kind of a part-time thing for him. And when he was contacted by the University of Penn, that they were interested in me going to college there. They said, hey, we are a Yankee fan. So his secretary called me up. I had never been to Yankee Stadium before. And I got a call at home. Actually, my mom did. And I was getting invited to a Sunday afternoon game by the president of the team, Michael Burke. And my gosh, they sent the car for me. I went down the Yankee Stadium. And the only thing I wanted to do, as you mentioned, was meet Mickey Mantle. He was my guy. You know, there were no Mets when I was growing up. So it was either the Yankees or the Red Sox. The Dodgers had, la- had left. The Giants had left. So, you know, we had a, a, a one-horse town for baseball. And luckily, um, you know, the Yankees had that number seven in center field. Well, I loved his style. And I think even when I was – first told about him one of my uncles said he was italian you know it was really mickey mentali but he changed <laughs> his name you know to to sound more american but anyway it went down yeah i went down to watch batting practice i stood behind the cage and you know i was uh, waiting for him to come out to hit he was the only guy i wanted to meet i wanted to take a picture with him i'm standing with the owner he doesn't come out until late Obviously, it was a Sunday afternoon game. We get it now. Well, he was probably just getting in. But anyway, um, he came out, took a few swings. So his bat up, batting practice stopped. They came, took the turtle away, and I'm left standing with the owner in the grass behind home plate as Mickey's walking to the dugout. And the owner's yelling, hey, Mickey, hey, Mickey, Mickey. And Mickey's not paying any attention. And finally, the photographer who was waiting with us went running over to Mickey and grabbed him by his sleeve and pointed back to where we were. And he reluctantly came back. The photographer set up. Mickey put his arm around me. And just as the photographer was taking the photograph, he said, I hope you have to go through this shit someday, kid. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and, and you do. <laughs> I've got the picture upstairs <laughs> on my wall. If we had a break, I'll just go upstairs and bring it down. But Maybe we should just keep going. Okay. I also like the uh, the story about your recruitment into Notre Dame, where Ara Procedian came out and gave you yeah. the, the two lines. That uh, could you tell us about that? Because I thought that was really interesting <laughs> as well. Yeah, you know, first he met me for breakfast, and he said, "You know, the reason I haven't been 
recruiting you like all the other coaches. I, I had been to Bear Bryant. I've been to John McKay. I've been, you know, at University of Michigan, Bob Hartman at Dartmouth, uh, Carm Coz at uh, Yale. I, I, I was running around meeting head coaches, and usually they meet me at the airport or at least when I got to campus, but I hadn't seen our procedure the entire couple days that I was there. And then finally Sunday morning, he met me in the, in the cafeteria, and I uh, said, well, son, I'm sure you're wondering why I haven't been recruiting you since you got here like all the other coaches do. And I said, well, I'm glad I got to meet you, coach. I'm really glad I got to meet you. And he said, well, I want you to know that, you know, here at Notre Dame, we believe you don't have to sell a Cadillac, and we're the Cadillac. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> so that was pretty cool. That was, yeah. Yes. And then as we walked out of the student union it was all snow covered and and the the sidewalk had been shoveled and there was mounds of snow on each side of the sidewalk and as we came down the stairs there was a mounds of people at the bottom of the stairs there were six guys on this side of the walkway and six guys on this guy side of the walkway and Aaron and I came walking down along with the assistant coach who was going to drive me to the airport I believe his name was Joe Yanto and we stopped right in the middle of this massive humanity. And he said, you know, and not only are we had a Cadillac, but there's another reason that you should come to Notre Dame. And I said, yes, coach, what's that? And with that, the guys on the right who were looking at me all turned around. He says, because if you come to Notre Dame, you could be looking at the backs of these guys. They're all offensive linemen. You know, they were all eight feet tall, 350 <laughs> pounds, you know, the biggest humans I ever saw. And I said, well, that's pretty neat or something like that. And he said, but listen, if you don't come, you're going to be looking at the faces of these guys. And they were all <laughs> seven feet tall and 400 pounds. And he said, these are the defensive linemen here at Notre Dame. <laughs> so those guys, I, I, you know, as I have imagined and fantasized over the years and even talked to Joe Theismann about it, Joe Theismann was there at the time. And he said that the, the guys who are there are probably the sixth or the seventh team players. Wow. And the only thing they were doing on the team we're recruiting trips, you know, the <laughs> recruiting BS. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yes. Whenever that was. Yeah. Then that's I have cool. a great handwritten note from him in my, in, down here in my, um, one of my offices from our, which is really cool. Should have been in the book, had a lot of photos put in the book. Matter of fact, I can't believe the Mickey photo didn't get in it. The mm. book got published. I looked at it. I said, how could the Mickey photo not be in the book? Right. Yeah, it was the wrong size. They couldn't crop it to fit in that whatever whatever configuration. They at least right. that's what they said. <laughs> the book is Valentine's Way. Bobby Valentine wrote this with Peter Golenbach. I, I definitely what Jeff said. Love the book. What's so great about the book is that you really bear your soul, Bobby. You 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 know you admit mistakes that you made. You you really. Anybody who wants to know anything about and and I'm not going to bounce around to the end, but I'm just going to say that you've got parts in here about your time as New York Mets manager. If somebody wants to know about that, the real intricate dealings. But back to the I'm I'm just telling you how much I love the book. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you, bro. Yeah, I, I love the fact that in your life and and I think we had this the first time we spoke to you, the names that pop up and it just happens. You're talking about Thurman Munson. That story. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a cool story. How you 
it, so I, I'd love you to tell that story. And then the emotional, the most emotional part is when Diane Munson is crying and, and, and says to you, I, you know, how she, well, I don't tell it as well as you. So could you please? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I guess the story's in the book and it's a fun read, but the reader's digest version is that when I was a junior, after my junior year in high school, I was lucky enough to go to play in the college league of Cape Cod. And I was all wide eyed and bushy tailed thinking I could handle the whole thing, not thinking anything was a big deal, but there was the first time a lot of scouts were at games and, and we opened up against Chatham. There was a guy from Greenwich named Ed Bird Beard Pitchin. And there's a guy catching for Chatham who's very talkative. I was a leadoff hitter for the team. As I was standing, waiting to get in the box, I was kind of timing the pitcher, you know, which high schoolers do. And Thurman very quickly told me that that's not what you do when you're playing with college guys. Otherwise, you'll be wearing one before you know it. And I said, whoops, I guess that was a mistake. But he kept talking to me, even though I was doing something wrong. And I had made a catch to end the inning right in left center field, going pretty hard. I was running as a center, playing center field, and I went up against the wall, and I caught it, and I kind of, you know, rolled a little on the fence. And it was a good catch. It was a good catch for a young kid. <laughs> uh, and when I came up and was standing there, after he told me not to time the pitcher, he said, hey, kid, by the way, that's a good catch you just made. And I said, thank you. Now, I'm not used to catchers talking to me in a baseball game, okay? I played Babe Ruth League, senior Babe Ruth League, high school ball. But, you know, this idea of having a conversation with the opposition, it was foreign to me. But anyway, he said, pretty good catch, uh, kid. I, I, I like the way you did that, but do me a favor. Next inning, I said, yes, sir, what's that? He said, go stand by the wall where you caught that ball and watch the ball go over your head. I'm leading <laughs> off the inning. And now, you know, I, now I'm trying to concentrate on, on hitting the ball right and, and getting up and, and, and facing the six foot four inch right handed pitcher who's on the mound. So the jibber jabber of the catcher really isn't resonating. I'm, I'm kind of getting into the, com uh, into the competition. I believe I grounded out to short. And I went back to uh, the bench, and there was a guy, Buddy Pippen, on my team, who was the second baseman for UConn. He was a really good guy. He was kind of short like I was, and he kind of befriended me the entire time. He was a junior in college. I was a junior in high school, kind of took care of me. And, you know, I just said to him, he said, who's that catcher? God, he talks all the time. And he mentioned his name. It still didn't mean anything because Thurman Munson, what kind of name is that? I mean, I played, you know, with. Billy Eppolito and Joey Chapetta. And I mean, everybody who ever played baseball I played with was Italian. You know, Thurman, what kind of name is Thurman? What? Anyway, sure enough, the next inning, the guy comes up and I don't know who's hitting because it's just the guy coming up. And I'm thinking about the next at bat and positioning myself properly. And the old speakers, you know, in those ballparks up in Cape Cod, they were just one of those little megaphone type of metals, metal blow horns behind home plate, right? <laughs> I couldn't hear a damn thing. So the guy came up to the plate and the pitch came in and he hits a ball and I'm running to catch this ball. And it dawns on me, 
as I'm running that I'm running to the same place I was the last out of the last inning. And I started to slow up as I got to the fence and I watched the ball go over the fence. And I said, holy shit. And I turned over my shoulder and he was rounding second base and he kind of pointed out to, out to me <laughs> like that. And I went, wait a minute, this is college baseball, you know? And I wrote, I wrote a letter home to my good friend, Joey Chepetta, who's still a very good friend, who has the letter, which is very cool. And most of the stuff, actually, that's, that's in the book, you know, when, when you worry about calling bullshit on things, and, you know, years ago, it was just that they call bullshit, but now they Google it. God <laughs> dang, you got to prove everything you right. say today, you know? <laughs> so just about everything I said in the book, I made sure there was some kind of, documentation or true recollection because you know how your mind plays games on you when you're thinking mm -hmm. 30 years ago you know what i mean yeah. yeah so that was a cool yeah that was a that was a cool experience you know the people got to read the the chapter on cape cod because you know talking about just being lucky it was one of those things gosh the guy the coach was at a game i won't tell everyone who the coach was but the coach coach happened to be at a high school game that i was playing in and i played really well and after the game he came over to meet my mom and dad and said he was coaching in cape cod and as i said for sure my dad didn't know where cape cod was and my mom wasn't sure if it was two words or one you know when he was saying it but we were all being polite and say oh that's nice oh that thank you oh that's really nice you want to play in cape cod that'd be cool luckily my coach was there with us who knew cape cod and knew what he was asking and went to my house afterwards and convinced my mom and dad that it'd be a good idea. And it was a good idea. It became a number one draft choice because of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And we know who the coach is. We're not going to say anybody because they yeah. have to read the book. Yeah. Kind of crazy who the coach is. Oh, yeah. Was, huh? I know, right? Is that crazy? It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. So, better buy the book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got to buy the book. Uh, yeah. I, I'm going to fast forward to uh, 1970. You were in the minor leagues playing for Tommy Lasorda, who, by the way, gave you a transistor radio when you were being recruited at USC for the Spokane Indians. And besides yourself on a team, uh, it was pretty good. Some pretty good guys. Billy Buckner, Davey Lope, Steve Garvey, your friend Tom Pachurik, Charlie Huff, Doyle Alexander all went on to the major leagues. You won the yeah. batting title during a series with the Hawaiian Islanders. But there was an announcer there who you say was anti-Valentine. So he, could you please tell us who that was? But also during that series, I guess you got beamed. And the surgeon who performed the surgery, that's another cool story, if you can tell that as well, because that was, I was like blown away with that. Well, now we can't tell all the stories, but I'll tell <laughs> okay. the Reader's Digest version. Yeah, see, okay. In, so in 1969, I was 19 years old. I went from Ogden, Utah, the rookie league, to Spokane, Washington, AAA, because Tommy Lasorda was the manager, and happenstance happened that you have to read in the book, and I got the call to AAA, and I didn't do very well. Matter of fact, I almost got run out of town, but that was when I was 19, and I went to back to the same team when I was 20, and instead of playing with all these older guys, Tommy had now brought up a lot of the class of 68, which I was a draft man, member of, and all those guys you mentioned were drafted in 68. I guess in, uh, Davey Lopes was on that team too, and Billy Russell was in and out of that team. Anyway, 
FBI played every inning of every game at shortstop. I did pretty well and led, led the league in seven categories, including the batting title. Won the batting title on the last day of the season against a player from the Hawaii Islanders named Winston Yenis. Winston was a really lovable guy. He became a very good friend of mine in later life. He's still a, a friend of mine and manages down in the Dominican Republic for the Aguilas in, in Santiago. He went two for four in his game, and I went three for three in my game, the last game of the season. Actually, he went one for two in the first game of the doubleheader that he was playing in the afternoon and came out of the game. And then he went one for two in the second game and then came out of the game. So we went two for four to hit 339. And I needed to go three for three to hit 340. And uh, I did. And one of the calls was a backhanded play by the third baseman that went down the line that was reported back to Hawaii, a questionable Homer scorekeeper call. Okay, I don't think the guy could have thrown me out at first base, even if he did catch it. But that was the story that was going around. Now, the announcer for the Hawaii Islanders who fell in love with this guy, Winston Jennis, because, again, he was a lovable guy, really wanted him to win. And when he didn't win, he called foul and he called foul for the entire playoff series, which started in Spokane. And we played the first two games of a best of seven series in Spokane, Washington. Then we were going to Hawaii to play the middle three games of a best of seven series. In the first two games, he announced that the game back to Hawaii, the games were in Spokane and he just was killing me every time that I stole a batting championship. And meanwhile, I got three hits in the first game of that series and three hits the second game of the series. And then we went back to Hawaii. I got three hits in the third game of the series. Now we were playing game four and we were up 3-0. And I had nine hits under my belt. And the announcer, Al Michaels, when the game began, apologized to the fans for making them think that I was a villain. And you could hear him in the pregame talk about it because everyone in those days brought their transistor radios to the ballpark. And they would listen to the game on the transistor radios and you could hear the game being broadcast, especially in our dugout because there were seats right beside our dugout in the old Hawaii stadium. So I hear him now apologizing to the fans. Oh, after watching him play these last three games, wow, he is the batting champion. There's no doubt about that. And as I went to home plate leading off the game, I got like a standing ovation. And the first pitch of the game hit me in my cheekbone and pushed Mm. it down three and a half inches. Yeah. And then a miraculous event occurred with the doctor who happened to be at the game, who happened to ride with me in the ambulance to the hospital and did the surgery on me, which happened to be unique surgery at the time. He was a renowned plastic surgeon, coincidentally. And instead of cutting my my face with the hook that many guys during those 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s got, because they just open up your face, then fix your cheekbone, take out any bone spurs, and then sew you back up. Jimmy Davenport. There were there were a number of players that I played against early in my career who were scarface 
And it was almost a badge of honor with a lot of guys. You know, remember Tony Camigliero had a cross here like this. Mm -hmm. Well, this doctor shaved my head and went through my skull with like a stainless steel crowbar and hooked the bone, which is which is down here like this and pulled it up by cheekbone and fixed it with his hands, his magical hands. And then just cut me a little underneath this little crevice here to take out some bone chips, I guess. And, and then he was off. He did the surgery. He was off. I never got to see the guy. I wanted to meet him. I never met him. And when I finally figured out why I didn't met, meet him, it was a funny story. And that's in the book too. Yes, <laughs> in the book. Don't want to give it away. You got to read the book. Yeah, You know, it's, it's so funny, Bobby. I read the book. And and now we're talking and things that I was like, I want to ask him about. I'm remembering that that is a great story about why you never were able to get in touch with the surgeon who is from another country. We won't say anything. And why he was here and why you never met him and why eventually you kind of met somebody related. So this cool story. story. <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't make shit like that up. No, you know I mean? no. <laughs> it, it, this is, and there are so many things in here. Like in the beginning, you talked about playing the, the summer league, and then you said something about they let me out of the trunk in time for batting practice, and then it went on to something else. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what was he doing in the trunk? And there's just so much in this book. And and you could, I'm sure you could you could write another a sequel, just from some of the stories that are in well, here. Peter, you know Peter Golenbach and I did this, and I did it interestingly enough in phone conversations. He's in Florida. I'm in Connecticut. I never met him. He called me up. He's from Stanford, Connecticut. Coincidentally, coincidentally, also older than I am. Followed my career, all of that stuff and randomly called me one day and just said, you know, I've got time. You've got time. I said, what kind of time are you talking about? He says, I'll need about an hour and a half or two hours, about 40 days of your life. Can you give it up? And I said, yeah, I could give it up. And we took about 60 days and took 40 of those 60 days where he would call me and we'd do two hours and he'd record it. And the crazy thing about Peter Golenbach, which is really interesting, is that he records everything on the same tape recorder that he was using in the 60s. Wow. OK, and he records it on he records it on the little uh, cassettes. Right. So you, you put the cassette in and you put the top down and you push record and play at the same time. He records it after 90 minutes. You have to stop, open turn it up, it over. And turn the tape <laughs> over, you know? So I'm talking to him. And I'm, oh, 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 wait, 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 the tape, the tape ran out. Hold, hold that thought right there. Now I'm on the phone. And I'm going, this isn't really happening, is it? I'm holding a thought so he could turn over the tape or even change the batteries if you could get, if you imagine that, okay? So uh, it, it, was, it was really interesting. And, and he took... I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of other stories, but he took this many of them and thought he had a nice chronological order to it and a flow to it. And I think it does kind of flow chapter to chapter it and it kind of keeps keeps yeah. people going. Yeah. You know, you get to the majors and one thing I guess I was surprised, but I, I didn't know the politics at the time, but you didn't get along well with the Dodger manager, Walter Austin. You were a uh, Tommy Lasorda guy and he didn't even call you by your real name. 
<laughs> why, why, why didn't you get along with it? Why wasn't that relationship all that good? You know, it's, it's amazing that up until that time, I didn't have many managers, coaches. Okay. But when I look back at it, not only did I love them all, but they all loved me. And for whatever it's worth, they were all Italian. Huh? Mm-hmm. Now, this is it's 1969, understand, you know, it's 1970. The world isn't quite where it should have been then and not even where it should be now, but it was different. And, you know, Tommy was a an Italian. Joe DiMaggio and Tommy are basically, you know, as Joe was leaving, Tommy was coming, you know. So it's that second kind of generation of Italians playing professional sports, you know, and the football guy who is like Joe DiMaggio is also from my hometown. His name's Andy Robustelli. Huh? So he was like the Italian in football. Well, one of them, you know, Lombardo was there, of course. But anyway, it was easy to like those who acted like you, spoke like you, and were like you. You know, it was easy for Walter Austin and Billy Russell to have a kinship. You know, Billy was from, you know, like a, a little town in Kansas. And what was a little town uh, in Oklahoma, I think, or vice versa or something like that. But, you know, they hunted, they fished, they smoked cigarettes. You know, it was it was a, a, a kindred, you know, where I was loud. You know, I, I, I ate pasta on Sunday. You know, I knew any other Italians that were on the other team and talked with them and, you know, did that routine. And um, it, it's just what it was. And that's why I say in the book, you know, the the idea that I hung around with Richie Allen one year and, and Willie Davis another year, and they were both black guys, had a lot to do with that. They and, and the Italians and the black guys were kind of being treated in a similar fashion. I don't say that in the book, you know, but a historian could definitely track it, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so it's just the way it was. It was a simple, it, it just the way it was. And I didn't fight it. I think I understood it. I never understood or never realized that he was the first non-Italian manager uh, that I had. And so I probably acted towards him a little differently also. Not only did he act differently towards me, I'm not sure. I was real respectful. You know, I was one of the, you know, I was a teacher's pet kind of guy, you know, as a player. I I always was there early, always was dirty, always, you know, knew the rule book and all that stuff. So matter of fact, Walt Austin in his book, though, did say one of the only times he ever complimented me and I I was floored. It was, I think, the year I got traded. He came out with a book, and he said, if you ever want a captain on your team, you'd want someone like the young guy, Valentine. And, uh, you know, that was his uh, caption underneath my display of bunning or something. So, anyway, yeah, uh, we we didn't – and I don't know if it was my fault, Tommy's fault, uh, Walt's fault, the world's fault, but it was an obvious – situation that was was okay i guess you know it was it was kind of you know when i went i i remember going in to see tommy in winter ball before i before i got traded to the angels and asking him 
if he thought I was going to get traded. And he said he thought it'd be the best thing that could happen to me. Right. Which is which was kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, and he was that that was the year he became a coach in the big leagues. Right. Right. He was still in the minor leagues. I was two years in the major leagues. Then when I got traded, he came to the major league. So maybe the world would have been different. But I know that at least some of the conversation about trading me was not having the two of us in the same locker room. Thank you know, you. Least, you know, it wasn't the full conversation, but I'll guarantee you. Yes. Tommy and I have talked. <laughs> we have talked about it for years. You know, yeah. that that now that we know how things happen, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Yep. It, it's easier to to figure it out. Yeah. Now, for, let's talk about Tommy, Tommy Lasorda yes. for a moment, because you had a very special relationship with him. I've heard so many incredible things about him. What a baseball mind he was. Can, can you, I mean, I, I know that yeah. you could go on and yeah. on, but I just Tom, say a little Tommy was him. bigger than life. Understand. He was different than everyone else. He was basically better than everybody else. I was at the Italian American Sports Hall of Fame last week where Tony La Russa was getting the first Tommy Lasorda Memorial Award, right? For, uh, you know, great uh, service on the field. And uh, you know what Tony said, which isn't said enough, and it should be said more, is that Tommy was great at a lot of things. You know, he was like, he was the first dude that people saw in a uniform doing things other than sitting on the bench and picking their nose. He did commercials. He did. He was the the wizard on on uh, this week in baseball, where he dress up in a wizard <laughs> outfit and and answer baseball questions for kids. He opened up press conferences for presidents at the White House. He could speak at a black tie dinner and get a standing ovation the same way he could speak at an elementary school and have the kids clamoring for his autograph. He was different than everyone else and everyone understood it. I remember having lunch in the Roosevelt Room with him and an Italian delegation when President Reagan was walking down the hallway on the way to the Rose Garden, saw that Tommy was in there and came in and sat there for 35 minutes talking to Tommy. No, listening to Tommy <laughs> for 35 minutes, huh? where he was asking Tommy about situations. And Tommy was talking to the president while Larry Speaks, the press secretary, was standing nervously in the hallway saying, Mr. President, but we but we have the Rose Garden, Mr. Brett. And the president was going, yeah, 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 I'll get there. I'm, I'm sitting here with Tommy Lasorti. What are you shitting me? You know, I mean, in, in, in Sinatra concerts, I, I remember once sitting in King's Row at, at, in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace for a Frank, Frank Sinatra concert when Don Rickles, who was one of Frank's opening acts, but his or one of his early opening acts, uh, was doing his whole thing, getting on everyone in the audience and embarrassing people the best they could. He had Tommy come up on stage to introduce Frank Sinatra. I mean, that's cool stuff, if you know what I mean. You know, oh, yeah. President stopping. But it was commonplace. At 3.30 in the morning, one time, we knocked on a, a window of a pizzeria in Dallas. He was there for, I think, winter meetings or something 
Yeah, winter meetings. And a guy was cleaning up his restaurant. The chairs were on the table. And he just knocked on the window. He wanted pizza. It was 3.30 in the morning. I said, Tommy, you're in Dallas. You're not finding any place open with pizza. And the light was still on this place. It said pizzeria something, right? So he goes over, knocks on the window, and he starts pointing at his face. The guy drops his mop. He's cleaning up, comes over, opens the door, makes pizza. We're having pizza at 5 o'clock in the morning huh? <laughs> because he knocked on the window. He's oh. he, he was, uh, I'm sorry, but he was spectacular. And in the 1988 World Series, for whatever it's worth, where people said, oh, the Dodgers beat the Oakland A's, the great Oakland A's, the Dodgers never should have even been in the same ballpark with them. Tommy put on 18 hit and runs in that series. 18 plays where he was orchestrating what was going on. 14 of them were successful. Huh? Two guys get thrown out at second base and two guys popped up and then advanced the runner. But no one's done that. In, in a month of baseball, and now you don't do it in don't a season of baseball. No. In a season of baseball, okay? Exactly. <laughs> but Tony La Russa would say, we didn't know which way to go. We didn't know whether to pitch out, wind our watch, throw inside, throw outside, who's going to cover second. Tommy was very good at management. Very yeah. good. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry. That was too long on Tommy. No, no, no. no. Oh, we no, love you. He really no, was the best. I mean, I could tell you, he could sit Thing. He could he could sing and and without accompaniment and people would sing along with him. He would sing the old Italian songs and all the Italians wherever they were walking down Little Italy down the sidewalks of Little Italy. He starts singing. Ladies would be hanging out their windows singing with him. The people <laughs> would be running across the street. Ah, oh, it's Tommy Lasorda singing as the Pied Piper went down the street. And he did that here. He did that in the Dominican Republic. He did it in Mexico. He did it in J- Japan before my eyes. I'm sure he did it in other countries when I wasn't with him. But I saw him have the same magical, mystical power captivating people in other countries. Uh, it, it was incredible. You know, when Castro took over and was came out of the mountains and, and ran... Was a Batista out of the country in Cuba? One of the first things he did is went over to the ballpark to see Tommy Lasorda, who was pitching in Cuba in Havana at the time. It's a great picture of Tommy and Castro having a cigar. Tommy in his uniform, Castro in his fatigues. It's really, <laughs> really kind of cool. And yeah. then the Americans left the next day. Yeah, Tommy yeah. is certainly uh, bigger than life in baseball. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And deservedly so. Oh, yeah. Bobby. The book is phenomenal. And one of the things, you're welcome, one of the things that I love about it is I don't think people realize the extent and and what a manager does. And this book gives such an inside as to the inside look of so many things that a manager is involved with. Your team, whether, whether you're a disciplinarian, you know, the different types of fathers, but your team, those players, they're like your kids. You have yeah. so much involvement with them and and things in this book. You talk about whether it's, you know, having to be involved with players, unfortunate drug and alcohol use. I tell you for anybody yeah. wants insight. It's incredible. Yeah. You know, and all the 
there, there's a lot of other stuff, you know, I talk about with players. Yeah. I, I don't know how many, and I didn't want to seem like I was bragging, but there's multiple, maybe over a dozen kids that I saw born uh, of my players, you know, that I was at the hospital when uh, Raphael Palmero's second son was born, when Incavillia's kid was born, Bouchel. You know, I mean, there's so many kids, guys from, from the Mets because of Tommy. And last thing I want to say about Tommy, this thing about Tommy. So Tommy changed the paradigm. Up until Tommy Lasorda, all the leaders in sports were militaristic. They followed the best team in the world. The best team in the world was the U.S. Army. They never lost, right? The U.S. military. Right. The entire thing, right? They, they never lost. So why wouldn't you go with a winner? So, you know, when you hear about my way or the highway, I mean, that's the way, way it was. And, you know, the sergeant didn't care about, you know, the corporal's middle name or whether or not he, his, he had blisters on his feet or anything else, right? It was just get down, do me tw- give me 20 more and go out and, and defend the country. Well, Tommy changed that paradigm. It was Tommy Lasorda who started to learn people's wives' names and their kids' names and care about them as people first and then about play, players later. And uh, I remember when he was, this might be in the book, but maybe not, I was playing for the Padres when he got his job as manager. Ian was against Padres, and Vince Scully introduced Walt Dawson, who said his farewell to the crowd, and then introduced Tommy. And as he introduced Tommy, he said, well, Tommy, I guess you're, really must be a little worried about filling the shoes of the great Walter Alston. And Tommy said, well, actually, Vinny, I'm sit- standing here worrying about the person who's going to have to fill my shoes. <laughs> huh? And the comments in the paper the next day by Sparky Anderson, who knew Tommy for a long time, right? They were in the Dodger organization as players together. He said, you know, Tommy has a way about him, but if he thinks he's going to hug his players in the major leagues and get away with it, he's got another thing coming. Uh, Well, Tommy hugged them. He knew them. He cared about them. And that became not every manager's new book to read, but most managers, hey, this is how you treat people, even though they're, you know, lesser, lesser people in the org chart. You treat him with respect, and he never got credit for that. You know, but he that's never, he the, never got that's the way. That's the way you decided to manage. Yeah, exactly. And that's the way I try. Right. Exactly. That's yeah. the, that's the only way I knew. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was so foreign to me when I got to Walter Austin. Remember, so it wasn't his fault. Right. It was my fault that I had never experienced that before. Where I realized later that was the norm. You know, when Chuck Tanner told. Greg Washburn to beam me on the first pitch. It wasn't like, hey, do something for the team. It was like, hit him and hit him in the fucking head. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, mm-hmm. yes, sir. Right. You know? Yep. Yes, sir. That's my duty. I'm going to go out and try to kill this guy. What a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. 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 So uh getting back to your career, you went to the Angel, you, you your manager was your college coach, Bobby Winkles. Then you went to the Padres. Not, yeah, but not my college coach. I was there, but I wasn't a player at Arizona State. Oh, okay. I had already signed professionally, right? So I was just 
to tell you the truth, I was fulfilling my full-time student necessity so that I wouldn't be drafted and go to Vietnam. Gotcha. Okay. So that was part of the contract with the Dodgers. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to be their number one draft choice, I have to be a full-time student. Gotcha. Because they're not going to wait two and a half years for me to get back from Vietnam, maybe without, you know, one of my legs or something. Mm -hmm. So that, that was the way you did it. Uh-huh. until the draft came in and once we had the draft instituted by nixon uh, you had a lottery number mm-hmm. i mean a lottery we had the right. draft then it became the lottery and right. then you had a number and that was pecking order that you'd get drafted and i had a real high number so i went to venezuela with tommy to play winter ball gotcha yeah so you played for the angels you so, went to the padres yeah. but what is known to all New York Mets fans as Midnight Massacre, but you were not part of the Seaver trade. Let's put it that way. You were not part of that trade. But you came to New York, and let's say that the team really just sucked. But you did play for uh, your future World Series rival manager, Joe Torre. That So how about coming to the Mets? Yeah, you know, coming to the Mets, you know, it was exciting to come back east. I had played, you know, for the Dodgers and the Angels and the Padres and and then later the the Mariners. So everything was on the West Coast in the big leagues. Now I'm going to do big leagues uh, in New York. Uh, it, it was kind of weird. It was that day, and uh, that day, you know, being on the West Coast, I I wasn't following any of the problems that Tom Seaver and M. Donald Grant were having. I didn't know, you know, that Dave Kingman was a renegade from USC who who spoke his piece and. And, uh, you know, trades were trades. And all of a sudden I got traded. I came back. I wasn't told or I didn't see in the paper on the plane, because probably because they didn't buy a paper on the plane, flying from San Diego to I think we were in Pittsburgh to join the New York Mets. I didn't know Seaver got traded. You know, I mean, there's no ESPN then. There's no no Internet. You know, all, all I do is I got traded. I had to pack my stuff. I had to make sure the house was in good enough shape that I could leave it, left it to my wife to take care of on her own, and got on a plane to go to my new team. When I got there and found out what had happened, and I had been part of this day, you know, it it, it didn't set in. It didn't set in until maybe the wintertime. You know, because, you know, we're just trying to make, you know, Lee Mazzilli was the star of the team. There's no need for Tom Seaver. Lee Mazzilli is going to be the greatest player ever played. And Joe Torrey's here. My God, he's playing and managing. Uh-huh. He won batting titles at MVP. What about, you know, Kingman, Seaver, what's the big deal? An- another you know, Italian I'm, manager. He's here. I'm going to. Yeah, I'm going yeah, to be resurrected and play great. So, you know, it took a little while to, to understand the first couple of days back at Shea Stadium let you understand because no one came there was an absolute boycott no one's no one in stands and the ones who were there were just saying such horrible things to you know most met players but yeah it, it was uh, an experience to say the least and yeah. to to have to have lifelong friends because of that trade like lee mazzilli and joe Torrey, and then also tom grieve who played on the team that team the next year right. uh became my general manager in exactly. texas you know, another another coincidence. Exactly. And, uh, I don't believe in them, but uh, exactly. Another serendipitous situation. Yeah. <laughs> so, Bobby, uh, Jeff is going to ask you uh, other questions, yeah. but but I want to. I One thing you were talking about, Tommy Lasorda 
and, you know, and, and the personality of caring for other people and the whole, I, I, I think that's just, I don't think he could have done it any other way. I think that's how he was. And I think that's how you were too. And, and I think that's pretty and that's apparent. How Joe Tory, and that's how Joe yeah. Tory evolved. Yeah. And I think you know, that was apparent. He was just a player manager then. He didn't know if mm. he was going to be the hard ass or if he was going to be one of the guys. And because Tommy was being one of the guys and Tommy talked with Joe as right. an elderly Italian would talk to a younger Italian. Huh? Yeah. And, you know, we got to, we got to take care of these guys. This is the, this is what you have to do. And, sure. and Joe personified that. Well, when you, when you were running for mayor of Stanford and we're not going to talk about that, you, you did a great job. You, you ran, well, you ran an excellent race. That's Thanks. not in the book but that could be in the next book. You did something that I just thought was one of the nicest things that I had heard of. You went to someone's house who was, who, who might be one of your biggest fans. And he's, you, you have a famous friend from Stanford named Dovey Zucker. And he wants you to know that you are his homie and hero. <laughs> And he thinks the world of you. And you went to his house. You didn't bring press corps or anything. You just went and you made somebody so happy. And, and I just, that, the, he listens to this show and he was hoping that I would just well, say let me hello just to say you. It. Let me just say something. One of the real driving forces in me wanting to be mayor was so that I could personally take care of his sidewalks around his house where his mom and, and, and he both made a point uh, to how bad the sidewalks are around the, around their house and going to and coming from, I realized that. And it was one of my kind of one of my platforms. And one of the things that I was like, I kept saying, I can't wait to win this thing. So I fixed those sidewalks. He's a spectacular. He's the king, by the way, just so you understand. Yes. You get it right. Okay. Absolutely. He king. Yes. Yeah. He, he actually, and, and, you know, he's having a 30th birthday celebration next summer. I think he, I think you might be getting an invitation to that. <laughs> I certainly hope so. <laughs> but uh, so I just I just thought that was so nice. And that he is, is so yes. he is so appreciative of you. And so uh, I'll go right back to Jeff. But I wanted to make sure that I got <laughs> that in. Thanks. And, yeah. And, yeah. Thanks. That was a, a great story. Absolutely. I know you you tired before you retired, you, you tried to come back with another team and it took a detour. You were supposed to try out with the Cleveland Indians, but then you went to the Mariners. So I want to know who is Joe Housie? <laughs> That's pretty amazing, huh? isn't it? <laughs> I was introduced as House, and I thought it was Tom House, okay, who later became my pitching coach, who released. But I think you're right that there was a, a Joe Housey who got released, and his uniform was in the locker room when I walked into the locker room and told the manager who thought I was from Mars that I could play third base. Uh, and, and that's in the book too. The reason yeah, he needed to know that is because his third baseman just wrecked his hand in one of these coffin coolers, you know, the, the, the top big tops that go in, you reach down into the cooler and you get your Coke out of it. Well, that was in the Seattle Mariners clubhouse in spring training and their third baseman who turned out to be a really good player and turned out to be 
a one of the great pinch hitters in baseball, Bill Stein, uh, caught his hand in the cooler as I walked into the clubhouse to say hello to my first roommate, Tom Pachorik, because I had a three-hour layover between Phoenix and Tucson. I was going to Tucson to try out for one of my other teammates teams Jeff Torberg who is the manager of the Cleveland Indians who had one day left in spring training and he was going to give me a courtesy tryout and on the way from St. Petersburg to Tucson I had a three-hour layover in Phoenix I went over to Tempe to see Tommy Pachorik because I had just been released and I figured I'm never going to play again and I wanted a shoulder to cry on and instead of crying on a shoulder I I went into the manager's office and said, hey, your third baseman just put his hand in the cooler and I could play third. And he let me play third. And I got the game winning hit. And I wore a guy's name on my back, Housey or House. And (laughs) I was introduced by the PA address announcer as that guy when it came to the plate in this last spring training game in Tempe. And Dave Niehaus, who later became a very good friend of mine because I spent the whole year with him and then managed in the American League, was the uh, broadcaster. And he did the star of the game show and had me on as the star of the game to explain to the people of Seattle who the hell I was playing on the team in spring training. And then they had another game the next day just to see if I could play other positions, they said. And I played every position that they needed except for catcher, which I did during the season. And they took with took me with them as they broke spring training. And that was the weirdest thing that ever happened because they said I could come to spring train, uh, come to Seattle, but they didn't have a place on the roster for me. And I said, well, it's better than going to Tucson and then heading back to New York. So I went with them to Seattle and uh, I practiced with them. And then I sat in the stands for at least a homestand waiting for them to figure out what to do with their with their roster. And they finally activated someone off of the disabled list. The guy's name was Juan Bernhardt and traded him to make room on their roster. And I became a Seattle Mariner, Mariner for the 1979 season. Yeah. yeah. And how the hell a- that happened. That, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. looking at your uh, baseball reference page and you did catch a couple of games for Seattle. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I caught in two games and I had never put on the catcher's equipment before in my life. And when Daryl Johnson came down and said, oh, you've caught before, haven't you? In the seventh inning of a game when our third string catcher just got hurt, I said, of course. He said, well, you're the catcher. And, and that was an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The umpire pushed me up. I went down to the squad, warmed up. The guy's name was Glenn Abbott, who was pitching. I was warming him up. And after I warmed him up, he pushed me up about, you know, three feet closer to the plate. And I went, whoa, we're that <laughs> close to the hitter. <laughs> it's, I felt like I was right underneath the hitter. Right. But it was cool. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, then you went on to your managing career, uh, Texas Rangers. I mean, you, you mentioned President Reagan before. Now you're working for future President Bush. You get, yeah. to, you, you get to the Mets, which was kind of strange because you were in Japan. I, mean, I want to get to Japan in a minute, though. But they contacted you about managing in New York, big league manager. But you come back to the States and you're the minor league manager job. That, that was kind of strange. So when you read that, did you say, come on? <laughs> 
that didn't yeah. really happen. Right? It was a, it was, was, it was very weird. Yeah. <laughs> you think that was weird? And never <laughs> and understand, never being able to talk about it, right? Right. Because uh, yeah. to to talk about it and and have the the place in Japan where I loved it so much think that I left for a better job is kind of weird and, and rude and kind of what it was. And then to get back and to say, Hey, the guy promised me the job when there's another manager already managing, huh? You you do something like that and you'd never get a job in baseball. So I went to the minor leagues and, you know, it's not in the book, but I, I wondered this and I tried to put myself back in that, in that time. There were guys like Rico Bronia on my team who went to the big leagues, you know, Rick Reed, who were in AAA playing for me. And I sent them to the big leagues to help the big league team. And I really was hoping that they would do well. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't know a lot of the guys on the big league team. So I can't tell you that it was root for all of them to do well, you know, because if they did well, then I wasn't going to have a job and I'd right. be in AAA for it. But I wasn't rooting against, you know, people have said, oh, I bet you're really trying to screw Dallas the whole time. The, the fact of the matter is, and if you ask any of those, the, the players that played that year, I really tried to get guys to the big leagues ready to play to help a major league team and never gave bad reports and always did what I was supposed to do. And it turned out that by, by August, uh, I was the big league manager, but it, that was a trying year. Yeah, I'm weird. Tell you, Absolutely. That was really a trying. Holy cow. I if know. I didn't have such good kids, there were good guys in that, that team, Jason Harkey and, and Eric Hillman, who later came over and pitched for me in Japan and, yeah, there were a lot of really cool guys on the team. Matty Franco, I think, might have been on, or that was the next time. No, I think he was on that team. Yeah, so it was all cool. I got to yeah. tell you, I was just yeah. a, fan, a Mets fantasy Benny. camp in November, and Eric Hillman was there. Wow. He, he is hilarious. He is He's so a funny, funny guy. Oh, my God. He was Eric hilarious. Eric Hillman's a funny guy. Yes, he is. Yes. Yes, he and, is. And he can, he can make sounds with, uh, yeah, He I don't know if he... <laughs> displayed any of his <laughs> talent to you wait, wait a he minute can, he can play a tune and, and, and uh, you'd be surprised where it came from yeah. <laughs> that's what i'm waiting to find out you know but you, i you, guess you did mention he's funny he's you, a talented guy he's funny yes absolutely i i when i read, was reading your book you did mention rick reed and benny agbanyani i i knew rick reed he he had probably his family had probably had crossed the picket line he needed money for his family. Absolutely. Benny Agbanyani, I did not know he also crossed the picket line. And I know Rick Reed was kind of shunned, but Benny Agbanyani became like a, a cult hero. I mean, the Mets fans loved him. Tell, give us a little insight on, on, on the happenings back then with the crossing of the picket line and all that. Well, see, I was in Japan that year. Okay. Of the strike. Okay. That's the year Nomo came over here and I went to Japan the first time. All right. So I didn't really know all of the ins and outs of that whole situation. And what, you know, what happened was, so there was a lockout like there is right now, or it might've been a strike. I'm not sure how it all started because again, I wasn't here. Uh, I was for the other ones uh, earlier in the eighties and seventies, but when it push came to shove, what the owners wanted to do is play games without 
major league players or mm -hmm. with major league players who would cross the picket line. And uh, they were putting together teams, and the teams weren't bad. They weren't with the great stars, but they weren't bad. Rick Reed decided to play. His his well, at least one member of his family was living in their car in West Virginia mm -hmm. at the time, and you know money was something sure. that was you know. And Benny, what the hell? Benny was from Hawaii, from no wealth and a minor leaguer that got released. All right, so ben, Benny was one of those guys who kind of was ready to get released as a minor leaguer, then caught on and stayed on and then the same thing happened two years later when when i took him he was ready to go home and i brought him to triple a and uh he stayed with my team and played great and then even in in 2000 when we opened up in japan benny was ready to go to the minor leagues again and they had an expanded roster for that japan series and he was the 28th man on the 28-man roster, and I pinch hit him with the bases loaded, and he hit a grand slam for us to win the game. Huh? Yeah, well, so, that. Yeah. <laughs> is, yeah, is that amazing stuff? Yes, it, it is. Absolutely. You talk about? Yeah, he, Benny has an amazing story, too, and he's a spectacular person. So yeah. is Rick Reed. By the way, Rick, Rick Reed, really good guys. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't know if I your question. I forgot yeah, what it was. Yeah. I love uh, those guys. Reading the, reading the book, I got the sense – I mean, you managed uh, the Mets, the the uh, Rangers, Boston, which I, I noticed is not on the cover of your book, by the way. <laughs> and then, uh, but in Japan, I, I got the sense that you enjoyed managing their best. I mean, I, I watched on on YouTube the, the Zen of Bobby V, and they just loved you there. Is that accurate? Did you really love managing over there? I did. Yeah. yeah. Now remember, I they let me do everything. You know, so I did the marketing, I did the sales promotion, I ran the minor leagues. There's only one minor league team, you know. You know, I, I helped conduct the draft. So I was in, you know, I was in my world the way people uh, like to be in their world, you know, controlling the whole thing. Let me see how we could do this. You know, it they couldn't win, they couldn't draw fans, they it was a bad performance, you know, they they were ready to be run out of the country. And, you know, I got to do a lot of stuff. So it, it was fun there. And the passion of the fan and the commitment to baseball that the country has made over the years. You know, this next year will be the 150th year of organized baseball in Japan. So, you know, they've been playing it a long time. and It's their sport. They feel it's their national sport, you know, other than sumo mm -hmm. wrestling. So I like that, you know, that. You know, you didn't have yeah. to play second fiddle to football in the wintertime or basketball or hockey or tennis or anything else. It was baseball was what what was happening. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really did enjoy it. But, you know, it was time to come back. And when it was time to come back, you know, I just felt like uh, I needed to get back to my roots. Yeah. You know? uh, one thing when you were, when you were coaching the Mets and it's what I found fascinating that you also were running your restaurant. So after the game, you go up to your restaurant and, and help close up. I thought, how do you do it all? I mean, it's unbelievable. You're running restaurants, you're, you're coaching in a major, you're, you're coaching around. That's that, the energy of Bobby V. That's, yeah. uh, that's, that's a great book. Bobby, you are the energizer bunny of <laughs> baseball. And just, yeah. I, it is amazing. Yeah. When you, 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 it apparently you cannot just sit still, it seems like. No, I'm not big at that uh, idea of relaxation and vacation. You know, I never, never laid on the beach. 
There's you know, so many more maybe stories. Maybe for an hour or two, but never really laid on the There's so many more stories in Valentine's Way. It's a, such a great book. Bobby, you have seven restaurants in four states, a film company, an athletic facility, director of athletics at Sacred Heart University, a mayoral candidate in the past year. I mean, how do you do it all? Um, you just wake up and try to go for it, you know, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing now. I wake up and I try to go for it. When you talk about the film coming, I just want to give a plug. We just finished the greatest beer run ever. All right. So the president of my company produced with Peter Farley as the director and, and Zach Efron and, and Russell Crowe, you know, when he's real big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it'll, it'll be out in about five months and you've got to see it. It's spectacular. Oh, yeah. absolutely. But okay. Yeah. Say it I, again. I just like to do stuff. And, and, you know, now I'm, I'm a free agent. I keep telling people I'm a free agent. And I love all the stuff. People keep saying everything from, you know, governor, Lieutenant governor of, if I want to stay in politics, do that politic thing, which I don't think I want to do to, you know, getting involved with every, every organization from either an independent team to a major league team, um, running the Lasorda Legacy Foundation, which I'm leaning towards because I want to keep his legacy alive and 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 do a lot of good work and and, and if I can there. But um, yeah, there's stuff going on, and I like picking up the phone. I'll tell you that because some of the conversations have been very surprising. You know, anybody? Uh, the book is called Valentine's Way, and you actually can live in Japan on a street called Valentine's way. That's how they leave a street at the Bobby Valentine over there. Hey, let me, let me say this, that Boston wasn't on the cover. It wasn't planned. It wasn't like a plan that way. We came up with the design of having, you know, all the directions and the graphic artist came real late with this. He says it looks a little like the subway sign right. where I thought of it, it, it when I, thought of it at the beginning a guy brian ballop a matter of fact through the idea of you know the the way this sign in the desert looks when you know wiley coyote is running you know chasing whomever he's chasing and he gets to that place where the road runner yeah the road runner yeah the road runner i'm sorry the road runner. and you know and, and it's all different directions that's the way I thought it was going to look, and they organized it. And I guess they kept Boston off because there were three on one side and three on the other. I don't know. Either that or, you know, I was in Japan for seven years and in the West Coast for seven years and New York for seven years and Arlington for seven years and Boston for seven months. Maybe that's why. <laughs> right. So <laughs> there, Maybe there's so many more stories. I urge everybody to get the book, Valentine's Way. It is. And we just touched a few. I mean. There's so many in here. I mean, your, your work on 9-11 was ap- absolutely outstanding. Uh, you know, we can't we can't uh, forget about that. I mean, uh, I'm sure you told me in time, but people really need to read it in the book what you've done during that time, because we were we're all grateful for uh, for you and the Mets organization uh, during that. Well, time. I'm grateful you, for you guys taking the time to let me be on your show again. Hopefully there's a listener or two who gets a chuckle or or oh, yeah. has an eye opening experience when they read the book. And uh, please have a great holiday. OK, have a Thanks, wonderful guys. night. Have a night. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And thank you, Bobby V. Always a great interview. Always a great listen. He is just fabulous. Second time on our show. And each time it gets better. Yes, you know? he, he's, he's just 
Just amazing. Just amazing. Bobby V, one of the great all-time characters of baseball. He's a character and he has character. So let's yeah. put it that way. And Jeff, you did a great job of, of getting to a lot of the points in the book. But I, I love what he said. Got it. Got to buy the book. Got to right. buy the book. And, you know, we did not mention the mustache incident that he was thrown out of the game. Because, look, I know you and I have heard that a lot. I'm sure a lot of people have heard a lot, but if you haven't, I mean, he puts it in the book and I'm sure he's talked about this on other uh, interviews. So we tried, we shied away from that because it was just, it's in the book. Got to get the you book. Know, bottom line is if you've heard him do an interview, he says, he told the ump, can I get kicked out for what I'm thinking? The umpire said no. So he told him what he was thinking. Exactly. And he right. got kicked out. Right. And then the mustache and all that. But, but there's, a, there's a complete backstory to the whole, oh, the whole complete incident. Complete so. backstory. But if we had asked him that, it would have taken half the interview. Exactly. And, and Jeff, why should we ask Bobby V about the mustache when we didn't ask Ron Swoboda about the catch? Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, Leonard, who do we have up next? We have also... Her second appearance on baseball and BBQ, we have Emily Detweiler, who is the CEO of the Kansas City Barbecue Society, or as we like to say, the KCBS. One thing we didn't mention is we have a special guest host with us who we're excited about, who has become, uh, as I said, I think in the interview, it's like family now. And that is none other than, than Doug Shiding. So we have a champion pitmaster interviewing the CEO of the KCBS. What could be better than that? I don't know. So here she is, Emily Detweiler and Doug Scheiding. Baseball and barbecue, you loved her on episode 72. Our guest is none other than the CEO. That's the chief executive officer for anybody who might not be aware of that, of the Kansas City Barbecue Society, known as KCBS. She had such a great time on that episode that she has been begging and pleading <laughs> to come back on. Okay. <laughs> the truth is we begged and pleaded to have her back. And we are so glad to have her on. And to honor her, we brought in a true award-winning pitmaster, Doug Shiding, who, if you guys don't know Doug Shiding, then you haven't been listening to Baseball and Barbecue. We are thrilled <laughs> to have Emily Detweiler, who is going to talk about the things she knows best, baseball, the Kansas City Royals, her brother-in-law, Ross Detweiler, and maybe eh, maybe a little barbecue. Emily, <laughs> I'm glad we can make well, you laugh. Welcome to Baseball and Barbecue. Me. Welcome back. Thank you so much. I love it. I had such a good time last time, so I'm excited to be here again. We had a great time, too. There were some guests that we have that we just, when we stop recording, and then Jeff and I are just talking, and we're like, was that just, was that just great? You know, we just, it was, it was <laughs> terrific. So we're, we're glad to have you back. And now, Doug, yes. you are our guest, although I think you might be getting to the point of family who just overstays their welcome <laughs> <laughs> yeah longer than two or three days you know how to the saying so please go right ahead wind up and pitch away 
Emily, I think, yeah, we met, I think once before at the, uh, the American Royal, I think back when you were in the, yeah. the Smithfield days, but so glad that you've taken over KCBS. And, and I have to, as I was telling Jeff a little earlier, I mean, tr- truthfully, I'm a lifetime member of KC, KCBS. Fantastic. So I wanted to state that up front, but uh, it, it was a little bit of a dumpster fire w- when you've taken over. And it seems like the the waves have kind of calmed some. And, and so you've done a great job, in my opinion, since, since you've taken over. So I kind of wanted to, to talk about a couple Thank of things. You. And one of them is this, the, the new stake championships and and the the program and i i haven't seen any events on the website but maybe you can you can talk about that because the i think that's new and exciting especially for me because i'm not a huge fan of the uh crossed grill marks and i am of the caramelization so i'm all about it and i love the love some of the rules excellent well thank you for the for the intro of that because um it is an exciting new program so you know, that's something that I've been working on with our board of directors for the, the past several months. And we really wanted to make sure that we put very strong rules in place first um, and developed our online programming for it. We also had a chance. So so what we're talking about is the KCBS National Stake Championship. And so what this is going to be is a series of qualifying events and then each of those winners will have a chance to come to Kansas City to compete in the Invitational. We'll also have an open, so anyone who wants to come to Kansas City and still compete will have that chance. But one of the things that's unique about this program is that we we wanted to pay homage to Kansas City. So for those who maybe don't know, Kansas City is originally considered Cowtown. And the Chisholm Trail that came up from Texas and through Oklahoma and and Kansas leading into the stockyards area of Kansas City, that's where cattle were brought by ranchers to, you know, to sell and uh, ultimately to ship out to other parts of the country. So we've got these fantastic historical Kansas City stockyards. And as we were thinking through this program, we thought, what better way to really honor the heritage of Kansas City than to have the stake that would be part of this program be a Kansas City strip. So as we thought about that, one of the things that we wanted to do is really give control to the pitmasters, to the cooks. So by doing so, we we decided that, that we would have a certain spec for that stake and we would work with specific purveyors or partners for for that steak so that the cooks could actually go online and buy as many of those steaks as they want to practice with and learn how, you know, how to prepare for those contests, but then also to control their meat. So they know exactly what they're going to be competing with when they get there to one of those contests. So we've been working with Creekstone Farms and also with Double R Ranch, which is part of the Snake River Farms family. So we've got those stakes. They're up online on our website, kcbsstakechamps.com. You can get to those links. And we're in the process of working with our contest organizers on adding contests into the mix. So we've just in the past week or two, I think we've gotten another five or six. So we're, we're getting those up on the website as quickly as we can. Some of them are going to be held in conjunction with existing KCBS sanctioned barbecue contests. And some will right. be held, you know, on their own. So so we're excited about that. We're also working with organizers on some incentives to help them kind of dip their toe in the water with us this year. So if you know any organizers that are even remotely interested, 
I would highly encourage you to tell them to reach out either to me or to Kelly Wirtz, who uh, we have brought on as our as our program manager for this program. Most people know him as the head cook for Four Legs Up Barbecue Competition. Um, he's very successful in his own right, and we're excited to have him on board. One other thing I'll quickly say is that we also have been working through a steak judging program. And so we've done some beta testing already, but that's going to roll out here in the next couple of weeks. So we have done the whole thing online for the steak program, which is really exciting. And uh, I, we, like I said, we're in the beta testing phase right now and things are going very well. I think you'll see, you'll see more about that very, very soon. I volunteer to taste it. I volunteer. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for that tip. <laughs> Emily, I wanted to ask you about what you recently had back in November, the KCBS World Invitational. That was seemed like a very exciting where we will put together contest or contests, I should say. Uh, could you tell us what goes into planning that event and all the different teams and what's involved? Absolutely. Well, you hit on a couple things just even in your question. So this year for the World Invitational for KCBS, we actually had three different contests within the weekend. We had the Backyard Invitational, we had the Master Series Invitational, and for both of those contests, people actually have to qualify. So for the Master Series, they had to have won either a Grand Champion or Reserve Grand Championship at a KCBS sanctioned contest during the time period. Or for backyard, they had to win either first place chicken or first place ribs at a KCBS sanctioned backyard contest. This year, so we've done that before, but this year we wanted to really do something new and special. And so since this year was our 35th anniversary of KCBS, we decided to honor our co-founders, Terry and Carolyn Wells, by creating an open contest where any KCBS member could come and compete even if they didn't qualify for the Invitational. And uh, the winner of that got to take home the inaugural Wells Cup. That was really exciting. It went to uh, Chris Schaefer of Heavy Smoke out of the St. Louis area. The other thing that was really cool about this year was that we allowed our backyard team to compete against the Master Series team in that open and not put their backyard status at risk. And it was so much fun to see those teams. And we actually had a couple of backyard teams that did really well. Um, Hickory Hangover, for example, comes to mind. I think they had several different calls, including a top 10 overall. So, you know, it was just very exciting to see some of those teams have a chance to come out. We also did some fun ancillaries at this year's event. So we had our Celebrate Real Pork series with pork chops and also Kids 2 with pork chops. We had our Turkey Smoke Series with the National Turkey Federation, and we also this year had a cocktail contest featuring 360 Vodka, which is owned by Holiday Distillery, which is based in just north of the Kansas City area, but they have national presence. So they were delighted to be a part of to be a part of that. So it was just a fantastic event. We had 145 teams total this year. You know, I think we were hoping for some a little bit higher numbers than that. And I'm sure we will in 2022, but COVID continues to, you know, impact folks. So, you know, even the week leading into it, we had people say, I can't come because I've got COVID or someone in my family does. So, you know, we obviously will help work with them, but looking forward to 2022 as well. 
That's great. And for anybody on episode 115, we did have the grand champion, uh, Chris Schaefer on our show. So, uh, yeah, he was great. Yes. He is so fun. And so everybody that I know in St. Louis, I've got quite a few, you know, family and friends that live there. Every time somebody says, I'm going to St. Louis, where should I go for barbecue? I always tell them, go to Heavy Smoke. Um, You can't go wrong. The food's great. The you know, I always try to send people to my friends and my KCBS members restaurants when I possibly can in any given market. So if you ever ask me what my favorite barbecue is, you just have to know that my answer is going to be a little skewed. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, we know the KCBS. I think everybody thinks of the KCBS as contests. It's a, it's a lot of, you know, you think KCBS, you think barbecue competitions, mm-hmm. but obviously there's so much more to it. So can you give us yeah. kind of a an overview of what KCBS entails. So, so give us more of an idea. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously you mentioned contests and, and we definitely, you know, we're a nonprofit organization. We're a membership based organization and really our entire focus is on driving awareness, education, that barbecue is America's cuisine. And we've taken that internationally, right? Because the desire for American style barbecue is, it's very strong, no matter if if you're here in the US or if you're in Italy, Australia, you know, Brazil, for example, people are very interested in American barbecue. So that said, you know, yes, we sanction contests and we help contest organizers, whether they've been doing this for a long time or if they're brand new and interested in, in what it takes, you know, we sanction Uh, As 2021 wraps up, we're going to have about 330 on the books, which is fantastic given where we were um, last year with the pandemic. So, you know, we've done as many as 450 to 500 contests a year. But not only do we help those organizers and we sanction those contests, we have to help train the judges. And one of the things that's really separates KCBS from other sanctioning bodies is that we do have a very strict process for becoming a certified barbecue judge. We are just launching our ongoing um, continuing education programs. You know, we're not just pulling people off the street and, and saying, you know, come eat some barbecue. We are really training people to judge fairly and equitably, not just on what they like, but on what our processes and protocols are. So that's a really big part of what we do as well is to certify barbecue judges all over the world and make sure, you know, that it is a consistent process. Likewise, we've got our international crew that goes into markets. I'll say, you know, because of the pandemic, we haven't had a chance to do much development of new countries at the moment, but you know, over the course of the last 10 years, we have grown into 35 different countries. And they go in and they train people on American-style barbecue. They frequently will have to teach the butchers and the cooks. They have to train the judges. It's quite a process. In a, in a nutshell, that's what KCBS does. We also have our foundation. So we raise money to help provide scholarships to our members' children or grandchildren. We'll do various community outreach events all around barbecue. So those are things we can do with our foundation as well. And then we work with various partners to help put programs together to help, you know, help them really engage with our, our barbecue audience. And, you know, through our social media efforts, we have really grown our social following. And a lot of the people that follow us on social media, we aren't necessarily members, but they're very interested in what we're doing. 
They're interested in what our members are doing and what our partners have to say about barbecue. So it's a pretty robust, you know, it's a pretty robust organization for this little nonprofit that started out of Kansas City. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm surprised you didn't mention one particular program from your alma mater, Ms. BBQ. Ms. BBQ. Yes. Not Ms. You, but Ms. BBQ. I don't know if you all can see, but I've got my, I've actually got my Mizzou sticker on tonight because uh, we're, we've gathered, if you can hear my kids in the background, I apologize, but we've got some Mizzou football and some uh, Mizzou basketball tonight. So it's an exciting sports night here. But yeah, we've oh my been goodness. working on various, <laughs> we've been working on some outreach efforts to really try to tap into a younger audience. And so one of the things that we did was we spent the last, year or so, having some University of Missouri, MIBs, YOU uh, students help us. And they actually have, in their honors college, they have a program all about the history of barbecue. One of our good friends from the Smoke Sheet, if you've not had Ryan Cooper and Sean Ludwig on from the Smoke Sheet, you definitely should. Uh, but they both are Mizzou graduates, as am I. And they actually told me about this program. So they were the ones that got me hooked up with them. And these, these students have helped us kind of think about what are different ways to connect with more of a college student. And I would love to find ways still of doing, I don't know that it's a full-on barbecue contest, but I think doing something like a tailgate series or um, our one meat contests that we have started over the last two years. Something like that, I think, would be very appealing for college students, whether it's a great SEC rivalry, for example, uh, school to school, or it could even be something fun like different fraternities and sororities, you know, competing against each other in a little tailgate takedown or something like that. So, so that's what, a little bit of what that program was about. Great. Go ahead, Lynn. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> Sorry. We, 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 we've had Sean and Ryan on, on our show before. They, they're great guys. Good. From the smoke They're sheet, awesome. absolutely, absolutely are. You mentioned your sports night going on in your house tonight, and we'd be remiss if we didn't let the people know that your brother-in-law is a major league pitcher, Ross Detweiler, yes. who I believe is a free agent now, but he last pitched for the San Diego Padres, and most notably, I guess his main team was the Washington Nationals when he, uh, he's, I think he was there seven years, and now he's uh, been, I would, yes. you know, he's been bouncing around over, over the last couple of years. I'd love to have, he's left-hander, so I'd love to have my Mets pick him up. Yes. Uh, so we talk a lot of baseball here and we talk a lot, Len and I talk a lot about the Hall of Fame, but the KCBS has a wall of flame. So <laughs> please let it, let the people know what that is all about. Yeah. So our wall of flame. So as I mentioned, we have a foundation even within our, our overall organization. And we try to recognize those who have had nice, you know, contributions uh, with a flame with their name on it that we put up in our KCBS world headquarters. And uh, we actually just recently put a new one up on our wall. So we had a gentleman reach out to us and he let us know that he had the opportunity to do what's called a qualified charitable distribution, basically out of his IRA account. And he could do that tax-free as long as it went to a 501c3 organization. And so he was the first person to do that. And so we had a chance to figure all of that out together. (laughs) 
And in doing so, he's got a very nice uh, flame with his name on it in our headquarters. So, but we have all kinds of different names that are up there. And sometimes they're even groups of people. Some of our various contest representatives have helped, you know, put things up. And anyway, it's just, it's been a great way for us to, uh, to help recognize those who help contribute to the organization. That's a great name for it, too. <laughs> oh, and I should say, uh, going back to your first comments about my brother-in-law and, and you know, hoping to see him picked up by the Mets someday, I will tell you, I lived in Connecticut for about two years, and during that time, he was still with the Nationals, and so they would come up and play against the Mets. So we would drive down and watch him play, and I loved City Field. It was so, we had such a great time there. What a beautiful stadium, and that was my first foray into Shake Shack. So getting to have Shake Shack right there in the ballpark, <laughs> I was also pregnant with my daughter at the time. So I had massive cravings for their fries with the cheese sauce on the top. And uh, <laughs> and Shake Shack is right next to Blue Smoke. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So put, put it all together and you've got some great eats right there. Absolutely. And, you know, you have some uh, in barbecue with, we always say like perfect guests are those that combine baseball and barbecue like doug is you know a pit master but loves to talk baseball we had awesome. on uh greg luzinski you know played for the phillies won a world uh, championship with them and he has bulls barbecue at uh, um, citizens bank park and of course boo pal is in uh, baltimore so baseball yeah. and barbecue definitely Sometimes, you know, you have interest in both, but sometimes they really merge. So one of the things that I, boy, did I just go off key topic? Whatever, that's that's yes. me. <laughs> All right, that's what we're here for. <laughs> but what I wanted to ask you is barbecue is obviously, we know barbecue is becoming just so much more popular, whether it's more restaurants, even the, during the pandemic, I see barbecue restaurants popping up, food trucks the number of podcasts that are that are popping up. And that's why the, the fact that you didn't know we had Ryan Cooper and Sean Ludwig on numerous times, we forgive you because there's a lot of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but how does this increased uh, interest in, in barbecue, how has that affected uh, the KCBS? I, I'm hoping that it's a positive thing for you guys, but, but how has it really affected you guys? Yeah, it's been great. You know, I think for one thing, again, people follow us on social because they're trying to figure out, you know, different ideas just based on who we are. I think from a pitmaster perspective, um, we've had more people that are interested in dipping their toe in the water, for example. It's helped us create opportunities to develop new programs. Like I said, with the, the steak program, for example, our one meat contest, our backyard program has just really grown fairly significantly, just with people who are interested and want to try to compete, you know, people that love to to grill or smoke at home and say, you know, granted, anybody who they give their free food to of their neighbors <laughs> always tells them their, their food is great, but to actually come out and see how they, you know, how they compare to uh, perhaps a more seasoned cook or to actually go through the judging process, you know, I just, I think that the rise in interest in barbecue helps it really helps draw people into that. And then likewise, I can't tell you how many people come up to me and say, wow, certified barbecue judge, that sounds so cool. How do I become that? You know, and so we've seen a large interest 
in people wanting to take classes and learning how to become a certified barbecue judge. And then, and then likewise, you know, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but we're actually going through the process of rolling out an ongoing certification program or kind of an update for our judges. And, you know, the pitmasters, they tend to do a lot of those classes on their own as they're continuing education and learning new tips and tricks. A lot of them tend to do that in what we'll call the off season. There's really not, I shouldn't, there's really not an off season to barbecue. It's just a slower season, Um, you know, but there's still contests happening right now. We've got some in Florida and Texas and, you know, there's Southern states. And certainly from our international group, you know, right now we've got contests happening in Australia and Italy. That's another thing, you know, it's growing internationally. So, you know, the interest in barbecue extends. And it's a, it's American barbecue in other countries. Exactly. Yeah. Now we're here in, we're on the East coast. We're in New York. Yeah. There was the contest in uh, that Jeff and I attended a couple of years in Staten Island but I don't think that it's still around. It doesn't seem to be on the schedule, right? I know it didn't happen the last two years because of COVID, but it might be coming back. And I also know that there's one, oh gosh, I want to say in upstate New York that's um, that's already on the books. Lake Lake Placid. Yes, Lake Placid. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So so really the the thing that I'm wondering, because I know, I, I say barbecue is increasing here in New York. I mean, we've getting some great restaurants opening. I mean, even, even I went to the supermarket tonight and right outside are bags of Royal Oak hardwood in, you know, in December or at Christmas time. And there's bags of charcoal outside Royal Oak. You would never see that. Is the KCBS increasing their number of contests in this area or are there any plans to do that in the, in the tri in our tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut? Yeah, well, I will tell you, there is a desire to increase our contest everywhere. So it's, it's really all about trying to find the organizers who are able and willing to put the time and effort in to make them happen, you know, because it's, it's not easy to host a barbecue competition. And it takes some, some skin in the game, it takes some money, all of that. And so, you know, yes, we absolutely want to do all of that. And so, if you have organizers that you think might be good <laughs> or interested, please put them in touch with me because there is definitely strong interest. And I think from a team's perspective, there's interest. Certainly from a judge's perspective, there is too. You know, I'll say certain parts of the country have still been just absolutely walloped with the pandemic. And, and this latest round that's coming around is not helping that situation, especially in New York. But that said, there's definitely interest. And so, you know, all it takes is somebody to reach out to us and we've got the tools to help them be able to do it. You know, we've got a pretty comprehensive organizer's guide, our sanctioning committee, myself, our office staff, we would be glad to talk to anybody on the phone to really help them understand how to do it and how to put one on. And also that there are all kinds of different levels of, of contests that you can put on, you know, so there is, there is a strong demand for it. Again, it's just kind of a function of finding the right people to help put them on and then also working with if it's part of a, you know, a city or municipalities, uh, special events or something else that's happening. Those just are other fun things to think through. I guess my message would be, if you know of anybody that's interested in, in even remotely considering something, put them in touch with us because 
it doesn't even have to be the full on uh, master series for protein contest anymore. Like I said, we've got our one meat programs, we've got backyard, which is chicken and ribs. Um, we've got our steak program, and certainly we've got our main four meat contests. So, you know, the footprint that's needed is not necessarily enormous anymore. There's just a lot of things that we can do. If there's anybody who's thinking about it, just have them call me. Doug? Yeah, that's awesome. On the in in terms of the membership is to become a certified judge. Or I know you were on with uh, Rick on an unnamed podcast uh, uh, hosted by Rusty Monson. But uh, anyway, uh, and you're going to have online training. Is that going to be for new judges, or is that just going to be for updates? Because I I'm not a certified Kansas City judge, but I'd like to become one. And there's not many classes down here. Yeah, great question. So at least for 2022, the online program that we're going to be rolling out um, is going to be for the continuing education program for our existing judges. So I'll answer that part of the question first. So really, that program is meant to help get all of our judges just up to speed, make sure that they're on the current scoring system. So we actually made some, some changes to our scoring system. Um, just this year that, yeah. So um, the other thing is, you know, we are so fortunate to have, because we have been around for 35 years, we are very fortunate to have members that joined us in different generations. And so because of that, they might have been trained differently over the course of those, you know, we've got some judges that have been judging for almost but full 30 years. You know, depending on when they were trained as a judge, they may have learned slightly different methods. And so part of this is also to just make sure that everyone's on the same page in terms of our current methods. It's just to help, you know, make sure everybody's nice and fresh. The other thing I would say is that, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we certainly had some people who were not as comfortable judging and we or competing, and we totally understand that. This is another great way, particularly for those who perhaps did not have a chance to engage and participate over the last year or two to just refresh their skills. It doesn't cost anything. You know, it's, I've, I've taken it now several times myself. I could answer all the test questions in my sleep. They're very easy. We're not trying to trick anybody. Um, but the program is free to take um, for all of our existing members. It's Again, it's just kind of a brush up your skills type of thing. So that's, what, that's the ongoing education update. We have, as I mentioned, the stake judge training, that's all going to be online brand new. That said, we don't currently for the 2022 season have new certified barbecue judge training online just yet, but it is certainly an an initiative that I believe we will be working on throughout the course of 2022, such that hopefully we will have something um, ready for the following year for new judges. And I will tell you that I don't think that the online judging for new judges will completely turn away in-person judging. Like I, I think we'll still do some of both. So I was talking about this with someone today, actually. When you have a contest like the American Royal, for example, that is so large and a lot of cooks actually want to come and take the certified barbecue judge class at that contest because they just, you know, for some of them, they got there because they were competing in other sanctioning bodies and they want to make sure that they really understand KCBS judging. Well, they take, they take the judging class. So I don't think that some of those types of, co- of classes will go away. If we do move to online, I think there's absolutely still a place 
for in-person classes as well. So those are all things we're navigating. We've also, oh my gosh, just in the last couple of weeks, I want to say we've gotten like 15 different applications to have various CBJ classes across the country and in other Mm. countries. So keep looking on the KCBS website because there are certainly things in the works that we post as soon as they're approved. Always look at kcbs.us for the most recent list of, of classes. All right. Thank you. Emily, you mentioned the, the four proteins, I guess, chicken, ribs, pork, and brisket. Is there, did I miss something? That's correct. That's correct. Is there a contest or do you promote, do you sanction mm-hmm. contests that do not include those? I mean, going off book, different types of uh, barbecuing that uh, people can do is it, is there in contests like that. Yeah, actually. So we also have, we haven't had very many of them lately, but we can do kosher contests. So we do that. And we, we've also done various competitor series. So in our, we say in our master series, you have to cook those four main proteins. And that's really so that the cooks know what to expect contest to contest, coast to coast and worldwide. But in the competitor series, an organizer has a lot more flexibility to choose their own proteins. They can provide all of the protein and require that the teams use it. You know, they can make certain things Like, for example, it could be an invitational where, you know, they invite certain people or you have to qualify by certain methods. So, yes, we have the opportunity to do things a little bit differently with that. Likewise, from an ancillary perspective, which basically means, you know, just any additional category, we can do anything. We've got the rules and the procedures in place. So, you know, the most common one is dessert and sausage as ancillary categories. But you know, we've got cocktail, we've done alligator at some contests up in the East Coast, we've done oysters and lobsters, you know, we can do various other types of fun things as ancillary categories. Excellent. You know, Emily, the, the pandemic, when, when it happened, you guys were doing things online, you, you, you were doing everything possible mm-hmm. to just think outside the box. Then, of course, it seemed like we were getting out of it. And I don't know, we're, we're, we're getting back into it. it. It's, you know, it's just, I mean, we're fighting it. Everybody's fighting it and we're not closing down, but, but we kind of, it's that whole mentality. So how are you guys dealing with the fact that it's going back to, to maybe not to what it was, but, uh, and I don't, I don't know that you are canceling, well, maybe you are canceling some competitions and stuff, but how are you dealing with it again? It's almost like, here we go again. I know. Well, and as a mother of young kids in, in elementary school, that's what mm. I think constantly. It's like, oh God, mm. here we go again. Please just keep them in school. That's all I ask. <laughs> as long as they can keep going to school, that's all I, that's really, we'll survive everything else. Part of the answer is our COVID protocols remain in place. You know, we had to put fairly strict protocols in place for contests, particularly for what happens inside the judging area, because that's where people are closest together. And so our current protocols basically follow any local mask mandates. So, you know, if you live in an area or the contest is happening in an area where mask mandates are required, you know, we follow that. We also are using gloves, a lot of extra hand sanitizer, uh, different sanitizing of the tables. We've spaced uh, judges out. And let me tell you, 
I think that, you know, as, as in a lot of areas of life with the pandemic, I think there are going to be things that have really improved our processes and our day-to-day living that are going to continue. And so I can't imagine our judges uh, agreeing to go back to six around a, a rectangular table again in the future, you know, because now they love being spread out and having these little almost judging pods, for example, and just not being sardined together. You know, we've put things like that in place. So, so we've got all of that still going. And the, the current uh, procedures are listed on our kcbs.us website. It is something that the board and I frequently talk about during our board meetings and committee sessions to say, do we need to change anything? Can we relax things? Can we not? And so at this point, we're, we're really pretty much, we've relaxed what we can and we're holding with a lot of the other things just that make good common sense. The mask mandate piece is probably the most in flux, I guess I would say, because we have gone to just following whatever's happening from a local municipality where the contest or the classes happen. So for a while, we had very, very strict policies. And that was really fun to navigate when it was brand new and people did not want to wear masks under any circumstances. But we got through that. And, you know, I think at some point people said, we'll do what we have to do to be able to do what we want to do. And so that was very refreshing and helpful. Just, you know, Barbecue is a very positive thing and mm-hmm. people want to come together as a community. And I see that from where I sit, you know, a lot of people love to say, oh, it's the cooks versus the judges. It's really not. Everybody is coming together for a common purpose to help put on a fair and equitable contest and to see each other as friends. And, and that's honestly, that is my favorite part about barbecue is the camaraderie, obviously the cuisine, the food is fantastic, but it's really the fun and fellowship and, and friends and the barbecue family. That, that's Agreed. why people, that's why people do this. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Emily, this is such a great conversation. KCBS is the premier organization for barbecue. I see uh, on the website, upcoming events in Florida, Oregon, Arizona and in January 15th it'll be in Italy. So that's, yes. that's terrific. You going uh, to that one, Emily? <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately I'm not, but I will say there there are a few contests in Italy in the summer that I would be much more interested in getting to, but uh no, I love all of our our European uh reps are fantastic, the teams out there and they actually we have some strong overall worldwide performance out of some of our European teams this year. So that was really exciting to see in our team of the year program. That's excellent. And I was, I would encourage everybody to go on the website, find a, a contest near you. There's a great search engine. You just put in yeah. your area and it'll show you a map where the closest, closest contests are. So Emily, anything you'd like to say before we wrap up, anything you want to promote your website, any, uh, I know you have great gear on your website too. So there's a, some great shopping ideas there as well. I know we're past the yes. past holiday season, but you still, and it's always a good time to give gifts. Always a good time to give gifts from the KCBS gear store. And they also will do a really nice job of customizing things. So you can get your name, your, a lot of our CBJs, for example, like to have their, their CBJ number put on shirts or lifetime badge, things like that. So you can do a lot of personalization with that too. You know, we've talked about some of our new programs, both from a judging standpoint, as well as our stake program. So look out for all of those things. 
I'd love to have you participate soon. And from a baseball perspective, let's hope that uh, we get to some sort of a new agreement so that uh, we can have some great baseball in 2022. Absolutely. And, you know, if I can, Amen. if you can please uh, let your brother-in-law know that uh, the Mets really need a left-hander. So uh, consider them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let him it though. How From about that? G, GM Cohen. Yes. <laughs> well, he, he is a Cohen. He's just not related I know, to that Cohen. I know. <laughs> Thank you. He wishes he was. That's awesome. Yeah. I'll tell joining you, us. I got to go down to Miami this year, and that was fun because I had not been to that stadium before. So when he was playing with Miami this summer, we went down and had a fantastic time. But we have had a unique opportunity to follow him to so many different stadiums around the country. And my son, it just sounds like he's super spoiled, but he'll, if I take him to a game on my own, he'll say, why are you sitting so far from the field? I'm like, oh boy, he's been spoiled with sitting with the family, you know, baseball player families too much. So anyway, but it's been a one wonderful experience. Baseball is definitely our sport. Yeah, that's beautiful. He's going to be very upset when Uncle Ross has to, uh, you know, finally retire. I know. Everyone, but yeah. he, he's a left-hander. He, he's he can had go a long for, ride. He can go for a while long. He's a left-hander. So. <laughs> oh, and maybe maybe exactly. he could develop a screwball. Yeah, yeah. If he yeah. develops a screwball, he could stay around for a <laughs> long time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you, Emily, for joining us. We really appreciate it, and we'd love to have you back. Thanks, Thank you. Emily. Anytime. Thank you, guys. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Doug. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. Again, her second time on. Emily, great to have on and look forward to the next time. Jeff, yeah. oh, go ahead. I, and, and, I, I and, I hope, and I hope her, our New York Mets get her brother-in-law, Ross Detweiler. Yes. Yes, because we could definitely use him. And uh, yeah, that would that would be great to have to have him on. And then you know what would happen is Emily, who goes wherever her brother-in-law is playing, would come to New York, and we'd meet her at City Field, and uh, mm-hmm. we, maybe we'd have some blue smoke barbecue. Ulterior motive, <laughs> but of course, you know one thing I wanted to mention with Bobby V. You know we didn't talk about his his running for mayor of Stanford, but. One thing that he said that really hit home was when he talked about Davi and then he said about how he wanted to do the sidewalk. And that just made me, you know, that's the kind of person that he is. So I just thought that was it. I thought that was a great story. Yeah. Anyway. So when, how do we end the show? We're going to end it with a beautiful song from the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser. It is Ace and Bobo. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. See ya.
Thank you.